Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. John 15, we're going to be in verses 1 through 16, and we'll read that here in just a few moments. This is a passage that a lot of you guys are very familiar with. It's the whole abide in me, I in you, vine branches discussion. And this is one that um, I love. I love this passage. There's a lot to be gathered here. Really too much to be gathered that we're going to be able to have time to look at today. And so we're going to look at it from sort of a bird's eye view and and get some good things hopefully. Uh, But we're probably going to have to go pretty fast through this one because there's a whole lot uh, that's being being said. Our college and career ministry is called Abide. The reason that we named our college ministry Abide is because we had this passage in mind that really you could summarize what it means to walk with Jesus by this illustration of vine and branches that we have to abide in Christ in order to have a fighting chance in this life. In fact, if we want to go and be with God for all of eternity, there is no other way except by abiding in Christ. That word abide can also be translated to remain or to dwell. What a good reminder, right? If we want to walk with Christ in this life, we must walk with Him, dwell with Him, abide in Him, and remain in Him. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to soak up that reality that we desperately need what it means to abide in Jesus. We've been walking through the book of John for months, in fact a little over a year now, and we've come to chapter 15. Uh, We've looked already at six of the I am statements that Jesus makes. He makes a total of seven. Uh, He has mentioned several of them. I'm the light of the world. Um, I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life and several others. And today we come to the very last one. Now listen. This is the last one, which means that it's a very important one. And the one that is today is that Jesus says, I am the vine. Now, this discourse, this discussion that we're looking at today has been going on already for a couple of chapters. And it will go through the 16th chapter, even into the 17th chapter. And this is very important, okay? This is Jesus' farewell discussion, his discourse, a farewell discussion with the people that he loves in this world the most, which are his disciples. This is very important, okay? So as he presents this last I am statement, we have to understand this is an important discussion that he's having with these guys. They've been in the upper room already. They've had the last supper. Jesus has predicted his betrayal at the hands of Judas Iscariot. And then in verse uh, 31 of chapter 14, which was what we looked at last week, it ended with rise, let us go from here because the time is about to come that Jesus will be betrayed and so they stand up and you can kind of just like uh, put yourself in the situation in chapter 18 verse 1 we read that Jesus is officially walking into the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples which means if they see if they rise and get up at the end of chapter 14 then chapters 15 really and 16 and somewhat 17 they're walking okay so they're having a discourse while they're traveling to wherever they're going Jesus has said rise let's get up in chapter 18 they'll arrive at the garden of Gethsemane and so now what we see is that I'll just kind of give you some historical context they're walking east of Jerusalem a couple of miles which is plenty of time to have a discussion like this they're walking in a moment through the brook of Kidron the Kidron Valley uh, and then they will arrive at the garden of Gethsemane and so it's neat to, to imagine that in the context of Jesus and his disciples check this out they're walking together to the garden that Jesus is going to now illustrate right before them what true discipleship looks like again on the way to a garden and he's going to be tested these guys are going to be tested rather before his arrest see he's going to walk to a garden he's going to say here's the thing guys we're walking to a garden but I am divine 
This is really neat that Jesus is using a real life, right in front of their face, illustration to put an example of what it means to be a true discipleship right before their faith would be tested by Jesus' arrest. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. Let's look at it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, as I said, there's a whole lot that we could talk about in this passage and really we could break it up into two weeks. The reason I didn't is because I think this is really teaching one main thing. And so we want to look at it together, even though it may take some doing to kind of get underneath this thing. And so while a lot can be said, we're going to go pretty fast and get a good understanding of what Jesus is illustrating as a whole. Okay, so once again, just a reminder, Jesus is going to be betrayed this very night. In fact, just in a couple of hours. And so they're making their way over here and he's going to tell them what his theme is right here. He's going to say that some are true followers and some that follow me are not. That sounds weird. When we say I'm a follower of Christ, that means I am a Christian. What Jesus is saying, and this is the theme, that not all who follow are mine. Not all who are physically with me that call themselves mine are really mine. Some are true followers and some are simply not. And he uses an illustration to do that. So here's what we're going to look at if you're taking notes this morning. Two indicators of abiding in the vine. The first one is this, true disciples bear spiritual fruit. Two indicators of abiding in the vine. First, that true disciples bear spiritual fruit. <clears throat> now before we look at the illustration, and we will in a moment, I'm going to tell you what the meaning is before we do, okay? Here's the meaning, that everyone does 
what is in their very nature to do. All right? It's not a very difficult concept that everyone does what is in their nature to do. In other words, who you are on the inside is what you will be on the outside. Whoever you are on the inside, that's what you will be on the outside. Now, what he's saying is that we'll just use an example of an apple tree. Apple trees, we know that they're apple trees because what grows on the branches? Apples do. Okay, I'm just making sure you're paying attention. That's all. Uh, Apples grow on the branches. And so we say that's an apple tree. But guess what? It's an apple tree while it's still in the ground because that's its genetic makeup. Just because you see what it is on the outside, you really don't even have to. It's already an apple tree while it's growing before it produces any fruit because that's what its genetic makeup is. Now, we know what it is based on the fruit that it bears. And so what Jesus is saying is you'll know what that thing is because it's doing what's in its very nature to do. True disciples of Jesus, here's the thing, will bear fruit because... It's in their nature. You have a new makeup if you're in Christ. You have been given a new life. And so how do we know that you're a follower of Jesus? Is that by your nature you will produce fruit. We'll talk about what those fruit look like in a few moments when we get to the second section here. But verse 1, let's look at verse 1 as we kind of walk through this. This is a very important introductory verse. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Okay, if if I could, if you could see maybe some italics in this passage, okay, emphasizing certain words. You would emphasize the word I and the word true. What Jesus is saying is that I am the true vine, okay? And my father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine. You see, Jewish men would know that Old Testament Israel, if you were to go and read your Old Testament, that Israel was often referred to as God's vine. There are many places that Israel is called God's vine. I'll just name several of them. I'm not going to read them for the sake of time. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15, 17 and 19, Hosea 10, many, many passages in the Old Testament talk about Israel being God's vine. But here's the thing. In every single one of those contexts, the failure to produce good fruit is what's being talked about. Israel, you're God's vine, and yet you are failing to produce good fruit, and the times that you do produce fruit, it's bitter. It's nasty fruit. And so what God's doing in those passages is he's pronouncing judgment on Israel. He's saying, you don't produce good fruit. And so what I'm going to do is what you do with dead branches. What do you do with them? You burn them. You get rid of them. And so when God talks about burning something, he's always, pretty much always, most of the time, he's talking about divine judgment. Now, not necessarily sending to hell, all right? But what is the divine judgment that God pronounced on Israel? Exile. He sent them into exile. And so in the passages of prophecy where God talks about the the vine of Israel, their unfaithfulness, he immediately says, you burn branches that don't produce fruit. And so you are going to be punished, exile. And so Israel's relationship with their vine dresser was an unpleasant one. Now here's what's cool about this. I think it's cool because I I don't know, I think that history is kind of neat. If you go read your Old Testament, Israel was a person's name. Do you remember his other name? Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so if Israel was a vine and they have 12 tribes, then understand that Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. What did Jesus have 12 of? Disciples. And Jesus also sent them out, not to make a physical nation, but to make a spiritual nation of God's people. Isn't that neat? 
The Old Testament Israel was a vine and they failed as a nation. But Jesus is the true vine. He says, I am. There's that I am statement. I am the true vine. Israel pointed to me, the one who will produce good fruit. And so the big theme here is that if branches are attached to Jesus, if people are linked to Jesus with life, there will be fruit that honors the Father. And he's contrasting that with Israel that did not. So two cases, look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It makes sense, right? Based on the illustration, you get rid of branches that aren't doing their thing. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so two cases. The first case is, is that there are some, or the first case is that there are some that are visibly attached to the vine. He's talking about these are branches too, but they're not really attached to the vine. There's a bush that's in front of my house that half of it is alive and half of it is dead. Well, it's because half of it is attached, but it's not really attached. There's no sap. There's no life going to that part of that bush, all right? And so while half of it's alive, part of it's attached, but it might as well not be. And that's what Jesus is talking about here is that Jesus had followers that had not received new life in saving faith. Guess who was one of them? Judas Iscariot. Judas was a follower of Jesus, wasn't he? Well, yes and no. He was a branch that was attached to the vine, but there was no life getting to him. He was physically attached, like a dead limb that's still connected to the tree, but it's not going to sprout life because the tree is not producing life into that branch. And that was Judas. And there's a lot of followers, I'm going to put that in quotes, like that, that are attached to Jesus in this context, that aren't really attached to Jesus. There's no life getting to them. And so the destiny that's awaiting these branches is fire, to go with the illustration. It's judgment, which is what he says in verse 6. Jump down. If anyone does not abide in me, that's not truly attached to the vine, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And those branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they're burned. Now he's not talking about hell explicitly. What he's saying is that those people that aren't in Christ, they do await divine judgment just like israel did so the first case is that some are dead while some are really alive the second case is what we see in verse uh, two through five look at it so he talks about the ones that do not bear fruit he takes away and then he says in every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit already you are clean because of the word that i've spoken to you okay so this is the second case he says abide in me And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So who are the second case? The second case are true followers of Jesus. He says in verse 3, these followers of Jesus that are connected to the vine, that are already been made clean, what are we made clean by? What are those disciples made clean by? They're made clean by the blood of Jesus. They're made clean by the gospel. And so followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, he's telling them, like when I washed your feet, guys, you're already made clean because you have faith, saving faith in me. But listen, God doesn't save and then he's just done with you. He has a work that he's doing in you, which we saw in verses 4 and 5. What he says there, 
is that because of your new identity in the vine, he tells them to abide in me and I will abide in you. That word abide, also think about the term, so abide would be the verb form of the noun abode, okay? What's an abode? My humble abode, right? It's a resting place. It's your retirement home that you're imagining. That's your humble abode, the place where one rests. And so what Jesus is saying is that I abide in you. I have made you my abode. We saw that in chapter 14. Look back real quick. Chapter 14, verse 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Listen, And we will come to him and make our home, you see that, with him. The word home is the same word for abide or abode. It's mene. What he's saying is, I'm going to make my home with you. I'm going to give you my spirit. If you love me, I love you. I will abide in you. And so in turn, I want you, and what we're looking at today in chapter 15, to abide in me. So what does that mean? Real short. It means to continue in a daily personal relationship with Jesus. That's not rocket science. To abide in Christ means to continue in a daily personal relationship with Jesus. So we're going to look at what it looks like to bear fruit in the verses that follow in the second section in a moment. But I want to make a distinction before we move forward, okay? This passage, you know, if you're kind of using your imagination like me, it sort of brings to mind uh, a tree that's filled with many branches, some that are living branches, some that are dead branches. But all of those branches, if you're going to personify them, they believe that they're just as much part of the tree as any other. Okay? Some of us are alive, some of us are dead, but we're all part of the tree. Guys, listen. Our churches are full of people just like this. They wear the badge of Christianity. I'm in the pew every Sunday. They hang around the church. They hang around Jesus. But like a dead branch without sap, they lack the new life of the Spirit of Christ. That's what he talks about in verse 8 when he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so like Judas far more minor, okay, not betraying the Christ, but like Judas, our churches are full of people that are walking with Jesus, but are not really walking with Jesus. They're walking beside the church, but they're not really in the church because there's no life being breathed into them. They're church people that play church, not Jesus people that follow Christ. And so I think a good application here that maybe if that's you, guys, stop playing church and worshiping the church. Did you know that the church can be an idol? Stop playing church. Stop worshiping the church. Be made new in Christ and follow Jesus or else you're dead. What's one way to tell the true branches in verse 2? He said the true branches will be pruned. It means they'll be trimmed. They'll be beautified. They'll be uh, kind of architected. Trimming the trunk away or the junk away 
to make room for new growth. What does that look like? What does it look like to be, tr- to be pruned as a disciple of Jesus? You see, discipleship is full of pruning and trimming. It means trimming a toxic friend group. It means trimming a toxic social media habit. It means trimming a wicked entertainment habit or trimming a harshness of speech or a gossiping, or t- a gossiping tongue. It means trimming foul language or trimming a workplace grudge. God is in the business of pruning his people and it may be painful but it's for your good he trims and prunes not because he is a mean old god but because he is shaping you into something more christ-like than you are right now so he prunes even when it's painful and a true branch will bear fruit So negatively, it means trimming, all right? But what about positively? What does this fruit really look like? And that's going to be our second main section, okay? Two indicators of abiding in the vine. The first is true disciples bear spiritual fruit. Second is what does that fruit look like? This is what it looks like. Heart change becomes life change. Heart change becomes life change. Heart change becomes life change. Last week, we looked at the fact that obedience isn't some burdensome obligation, but it's an overflow of a spirit of love. And I hope that you were here last week. Uh, I really do. It was a a message that was heavy on my soul. It was heavy on many of yours. But the theme, I'm just going to tell you, that it was that obedience isn't some burdensome obligation. It's an overflow of a spirit of love. If we love Christ, we will want to honor him and obey him. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, If you abide in me... And my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. How about those words? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Here's the way we're going to break this down. There's going to be four fruits, so to speak. And you could argue more. Certainly we could bring Galatians 5 into the mix and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And those things fit, I believe. But in the certain immediate context, Jesus is talking about four things, what it looks like for heart change to become real life change. The first is this, Christ-centered prayer. Christ-centered prayer. Now listen, put italics or underline the word Christ right there, okay? Because far too often we pray me-centered prayers, don't we? Christ-centered prayer. And certainly that has to do with you, but ultimately God should be the object and the glory, glorifying object of our prayer life. These two things are tied together. In verse 7 he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I talked about last week, you know, Jesus kind of mentioned something like that. I think it was last week. And that when I was a kid, I would pray, uh, you know, in Jesus' name, that God would give me a million dollars, that he'd give me my dream car, that uh, I would have the perfect job. That's, that's not what it means, that God will grant your desires, whatever they are. What it means is that, listen, if you are uh, abiding in me, and, and you will desire to bear the fruit that I want you to bear, If you're abiding in me, you're going to pray my desires, not your desires. So abide in me and I in you. And so whatever you pray, if you're abiding in me, you're going to be given that thing. Because that's what I want for you. Here's the truth, guys. God will always produce fruit through his people that glorifies him, not glorifies you. God will always produce fruit through his people that glorifies him. 
Abiding in Christ transforms what you want in life. You don't pray for junk. You pray for wisdom. You pray for understanding. You pray for knowledge of His Word. You pray for a loving heart. You pray for an act of service. You pray for evangelistic opportunities. Guys, those desires are God's desires for you. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Christ-centered prayer. Underline that word Christ. Second, Christ-centered love in action. Christ-centered love in action. And this is kind of hitting on what we talked about last week. That's that obedience doesn't earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. Okay? There's no way that you can earn the favor of God. Because if you could, you would have lost that favor. Because you're not, you're not able to earn that kind of favor, right? Because you fall short of His glory every day. And so obedience doesn't earn love. It's the opposite. Obedience is the evidence of love. I used an illustration last week, and I'll bring it up again now, about that movie, The Breakup. Some of you guys may have seen that movie. It's a, it's a couple, and they come home, and they're bickering over doing the dishes. And she's like, uh, he's like, well, you know, I was going to do the dishes. That's what you wanted, and fine, I'll just do it. And she says, no, I want you to want to do the dishes. And his response is, who wants to do the dishes, right? No one. No one wants to do dishes. But what she wants is that, she would, that he would love her so much that he would want to do things that love her. Want to do the dishes, even though you don't want to do the dishes. And so whenever you love someone to that extent, you want to do things that honor and love that person, right? Some of you guys that have been married for a while understand that. That you're still dating your spouse. I love you and therefore I want to love you. And do things in the way that show you that. This is what Jesus is talking about in verses 9 and 10. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Listen to this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Well, Jesus is illustrating love in action. What He's saying is, I love the Father a lot, okay? I love the Father so much that I'm here to die because that's what He wants. How much love can somebody have for another person? Jesus says, how much do I love my father? I love him so much that he wants me to come and die for you. And I want to do that because he wants me to do that. Jesus didn't go to the cross begrudgingly and, okay, I guess I'll do that. That'd be like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Jesus wanted to die on the cross for your sins. Why? Because he loves his father. And so he's illustrating that point and saying, I want you to love me so much that you obey me. I love the Father, and that's why I'm here. The gospel, the good news, the fact that Jesus died to save you from your sin, that while you fell short of the glory of God, you come into this world sinful just like I do, broken fellowship, separated from God, no hope. But the gospel is good news, because he who knew no sin became sin so that you who knew no righteousness could become righteous so how do we know that jesus loves the father because he will be obedient to the point of death even death on the cross as philippians 2 says so here's what i want you to understand if you struggle to be obedient if you struggle to flee patterns of sin, if you struggle to simply obey God, 
It isn't that you struggle to follow rules. It isn't that you struggle to keep the statutes and commandments. It's that you don't love Jesus enough in the moments that you're tempted to sin. That's the truth, man. It's not that you struggle to follow rules. It's that in the moments that you're tempted or given the opportunity to obey, you love sin more than you love Jesus. And I'm speaking from experience. You will always do what you most desire to do in every moment of every day. If you love Jesus more than you love sleep, you will read in the morning God's word and you'll pray in the morning, even when it means sacrificing sleep. If you love Jesus more than your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your own body, you will want sexual purity more than you will want gratification of the flesh. It's as simple as that. If you love Jesus more than your kids' desires, you will wake them up for church. If you love Jesus more than your grades, you won't cheat. If you love Jesus more than convenience, you will be inconvenienced in order to be obedient. That's just the reality. Sin is more than just not following rules. Sin is loving sin more than loving Jesus. And that is the real deal right there, isn't it? That's cutting no corners. If you struggle to be obedient, it's not that you struggle to follow rules. It's that in those moments, you don't love Jesus enough. So how do you fix that? We'll go back to number one, Christ-centered prayer. God wants you to love him. Pray, God, help me to love you more than I love my sin. That's God's desire, isn't it? That you would love him more than you love sin? He just said, ask whatever you wish. If it's in line with abiding in me, I will grant it to you. You want to make some weight on patterns of sin that you struggle with? Pray that you would love Jesus more than you love that thing. Third, Christ-centered joy. When we talk about obedience, when we talk about rules, when we talk about doing things like following commandments, sometimes we can get the feeling that that's burdensome. No, no. That's why the very next part, Jesus talks about joy, not a burden. Before the readers would get the idea that to be tied to obedience would be exhausting and enslaving and it'd be no fun. All Christianity is just no fun because you, you can't go do the, the, uh, the pleasure-seeking things in life. Guys, listen, we're not monks and nuns. We're followers of Jesus. There is greater joy in nothing, nothing, than following Christ. Jesus' true love expressed in obedience is not just joyful, it's complete joy. I mean, it's better joy than anything else that could bring it. Verse 11. These things, so those things I just mentioned, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. How about that? Be obedient. It's not a begrudging thing. You will have joy in you and that your joy may be full joy. You see, legalists and rule followers are miserable rule followers. We're checking boxes as a tiresome chore, but Christ followers are filled not with begrudging chore doing, but with joy and gladness that can only be traced back to this proclamation. Let it be my life's refrain to live as Christ, to die as gain. Psalm 16 11 is one of my absolute favorites. It says, you make known to me the path of life. Listen to this. In your presence there is fullness of what? Do you know? Joy. At your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. Guys, listen. Jesus created joy. If you claim that the creator of joy has made his abode in you, but you are miserable, something's wrong. Something's wrong with that. If you can sing the songs that we sing about the goodness of God, and you look miserable, something's wrong with that. The creator of joy is living within you, and you can't be joyful and have a a glad look and demeanor about yourself. Something's wrong with that. Christ-centered joy. If he is the center of our affections, we will be joyful. And finally, number four, Christ-centered sacrificial love. Christ-centered sacrificial love. It's love that puts others before self. And he's about to go and display this one, isn't he? Christ-centered, sacrificial love. It's love that honors and worships Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another, listen, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Check this out. In all of the Old Testament, there are only two people that are referred to as friends of God. Do you know who those people are? Moses. Abraham. Titans of the faith, right? In all of these guys' Bibles, two people are called friends of God. Abraham and Moses. What a declaration for Jesus to say, disciples, if you love me, you are God's friend. You are in the, the class of champions of Abraham and Moses. And how do you see this love from God showing you that he is your friend? The perfect love that a sinless Savior would die for sinful disciples of Christ. That's our story. And that these disciples aren't the only friends of God. But that if you are found in Jesus, you are a friend of the Most High God. So the call here is for us to love other people like God has loved you. He was willing to lay down it all for you. A holy person for an unrighteous person. How can we not love sacrificially? He wraps it up in verses 14 and 15, 16. Look at verse 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I heard from the Father, I've made known to you. You see, obedience is not what makes them friends of Christ, but what characterizes them as friends of Christ. And he uses this illustration. He says, slaves are basically told what to do, and so they do those things. But friends know their master's thinking, and so they obey with privilege and understanding of their master's heart. And so they put this relationship with his dear friends in perspective that Jesus reminds reminds them that it is he that chose them this is great love look at 16 you did not choose me this is the friendship this is the love you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you simply put 
If you are friends of God, if you are in Christ, you and I are saved for a purpose. Jesus didn't just save the disciples. He didn't just call them from their fishing boats and from their tax collecting. He didn't just call them so that they could go to heaven. He saved them that they would go and do His work and bring the Father glory. How selfish of us to say, I'm saved for me. Jesus did not save you just for you. You're not just saved to be cleared off the list. I'm not going to hell, so thank God. If that's the reason He saved you for you, that is so selfish. Jesus did not die for you. Certainly He died for you. But you weren't the primary motivating factor in Jesus' heart. What was it? The glory of the Father. Christian, praise God that He has saved you from your sin. But you are saved by God, for God. And to sit on your salvation and do nothing with it is absolutely wicked. And it dishonors the Savior who bought you. Look back at verse 1. I'm going to close with looking at verse 1 again. <clears throat> I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser, the true vine. I think what Jesus is saying here to a bunch of Jewish guys, right? That the path to God is not through a nation or through religious practices. The Pharisees and the priests, whenever someone that wasn't of the Jewish uh, faith and wanted to start worshiping Yahweh, they would make them do a bunch of things to include them into the people of Israel. They had to make certain sacrifices and pray certain prayers in order to be part of the club. And so what Jesus is saying, he's, he's dispelling that myth that, guys, you're not, uh, not going to find God by going through some nation or through some practice. Finding God is not through a nation or a people group. It is through a person and His cross. The way to be reconciled with God is not by becoming a citizen of a nation. Or listen, the way to God is not by becoming a member of a church. Don't focus on doing good things. Or listen, don't even focus on being in church. Isn't that a weird thing to hear your pastor say? Don't even focus on being in church. I'm going to tell you what to be the center of your focus. Focus on being in absolute, madly, obsession of love with Jesus. And the rest of these things will be added to you as well. Don't make an idol out of this building. This is not the main thing. If you love Jesus more than you love the family that you were brought up in that raised you to love Jesus, more than you love the church that you were brought up in that taught you to love Jesus, if you love Jesus more than you love those things, you will want to abide in the vine. You will want to be involved in your church. You will want to study your Bible. You will want to disciple your kids. You will want to honor Him in every facet of everything that you do. But hear me say it again. Don't focus on doing good. Don't focus on doing at all. Focus on loving Jesus. On abiding in Jesus. And all these things will be added unto you. Folks, we have too many people who have made the extent of their faith being good church people. Listen, be branch people. Be tethered people. Absolutely linked to the only life force 
that you can possibly have in this life and bear fruit that exalts the Savior who died that you may live. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Father, Lord, we glorify your name. We want to make you the main thing, the center of our affections. Forgive us so often of loving things and people and stuff and structures and money and entertainment and loving sin more than we love Jesus. Lord, help us to love you more than we love anything. Prune us, trim us, and though it may be painful... We pray, Lord, that we would exalt the name of the Father by the power of Jesus and through the empowerment of your Spirit. Work on us now as we respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.